Hey, you're listening to Meet the Difference Makers, an Enroll Films podcast where we talk to the difference makers inside higher education. Each episode is crafted to bring you a dose of encouragement, a spark of inspiration, and a heartfelt reminder that the incredible work you're doing in higher ed is changing lives. And now your host, Ryan Coral. In today's episode of Meet the Difference Makers, we talk about recovering the true value of higher education. We also cover how influential teachers play a significant role in guiding students and, of course, the importance of community and shared experiences that you can only get at university. Man, this is such a great episode with Jefferson. He shared a really powerful story of a difference maker in his own life. Really excited for you to hear that in the entire conversation Before we dive in, if you are responsible for telling the stories at your institution or you know the person who is in charge, I'd love to share with you, I think, a very valuable resource that we use to help create these authentic and soulful uh, video stories that will engage with your students and your alumni and connect with uh, even donors. Uh, We call it our testimonial capture checklist, and it includes our secret formula for capturing powerful testimonials. I think most testimonials are pretty flat. And if you want to stand apart from your competition, you've got to be asking the right questions. You need to be telling the right stories. And to get the kind of responses that are going to move the needle in your marketing, we're giving away our secret sauce in this uh, checklist. So this is my gift to you for being a listener of the show. You can download the testimonial capture checklist by going to enrollfilms.com slash checklist. See what I did there? Trying to make it real simple for you. All right, let's dive into today's interview with Jefferson Campbell. What's up, friends? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I have with me Dr. Jefferson Campbell, who is the Dean of the College of the Arts and Media at Central Michigan University. Dr. Campbell, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Oh, I am so excited to be here. Thanks for asking me and inviting me. Absolutely. So our mutual friend now, uh, Jim, uh, highly recommended that uh, you come on the show. Why in the world would Jim uh, have you uh, on the show? Oh, I don't know. Maybe Jim's starting to lose it a little bit. Um, no, no, no. Jim, Jim is one of those, uh, you know, he's one of those change makers and he has been for almost 40 years at this school. And uh, yeah. I have such great respect for him. And I've had the chance to have a lot of private conversations with him. And I, I don't know. I, I think he sees that I mean what I say when this is a service job. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, he, he was very, uh, very adamant that, uh, (laughs) he's, he's the man. So, well, that's very Um, kind of him. (laughs) So how did you end up, uh, actually, before we get there, tell me a a little bit about what, what is the day to day of your work look like? So, you know, (laughs) I would say for the most part, my day to day is going to meetings and advocating for the college and the faculty when it comes to budget talks and new positions. And, you know, that's sort of not fun stuff that people associate with administrative positions. But Mm to be honest with you, the best parts of the job are when I get to interact with alumni and, of Mm -hmm. course, donors. But getting to know all of the alums and what they've accomplished. And uh, I tell the faculty this all the time, that that is the best part of my job. And I am absolutely blown away with every alum or group of alums I meet because they're all very successful, varying degrees of what we define as success, but they're happy and they've made lives for themselves doing what they wanted to do. And honestly, that's, 
that's our mission. I mean, it's an easy way for me to point to something and go, look at our mission statement and look at all these people. Uh, but other than that, you know, it's, uh, it's handling, you know, I- issues that come up during the day. You know, sometimes it's a, a student concern. Sometimes it's a faculty concern. Um, a lot of times it's money. It's, it's helping people find money for really cool ideas. Uh, like I said a minute ago with the reference to Jim, it, it's a service job. It, I'm, I'm here to serve the college in every way I can. And that was why I wanted to do the job, actually. So did you grow up wanting to be a dean? Is that, was that like number one on your list? Well, like all young people, that was, you know, top of my list. It was dean, astronaut, president, you know, <laughs> down the list. No, no, no. If you, if you had asked me even five years ago. Baseball player. Yeah, exactly. I would have told you absolutely not. I don't, I don't ever want to do that job. I don't want to be a full-time administrator. I, I want to at least be able to be still teaching. Um, but, you know, circumstances change, life changes, yeah. your, your own personal and professional goals change. So it was never anything I set out for. I just kind of ended up on that path. And was there, was there a moment in time uh, or an event or something that led you to say that you wanted to serve, work, work at an institution um, and, and invest in that way? Yeah, uh, it was in 2011. Uh, at my previous institution and the department head job was open and there didn't seem to be any, any people who wanted to step up and do it. And even though I had never done that job before, I felt like, you know, I I think I have ideas that I can work with people and and move us forward, you know, attract more students, grow our program. So I did that for six years and it was a really rough time. It was, you know, all these budget cuts and reductions and that, all that is always tough. So after six years, I was like, I'm done. I, I, I served my time. And then our associate dean out of nowhere retired, like in May. And the current dean at the time contacted me and he said, you should apply for that. I said, no, I, I have a sabbatical this year. I'm going to catch up on all this stuff. And he said, I, you know, I really think you should apply. I, at least throw your hat in there and see what happens. And so I did. And then I ended up getting offered that job. And again, I had ideas for how I thought I could help the college, not just the department, but the college with enrollment and fundraising and marketing and everything else. So I took that job and then I was perfectly happy. Associate Dean's a pretty easy gig. You don't have to come up with things. You don't have to handle budgets. But um, they merged our college right as the pandemic started. So the announcement for the merger was in 2019, November. And then, of course, the pandemic hits in March. And so they asked me to stay on to help with the transition into the new, new named college. Yeah. I did. And then I stuck around for another year doing that. And eventually I, I got a little frustrated, to be honest, because I felt like I had ideas that could improve students' lives, could improve what we were doing. And I didn't really have any authority to act on it. And Dean was great. But he was so busy handling pandemic and budget cuts and everything else, we couldn't act on it too much. So that's when my wife said, it's time to put up or shut up. If, if you're going to keep talking and telling people about all this stuff, go, go get the job. And so I started applying for, for gigs. And Central mm. came open. I fell in love with it just from reading the job ad. And then when yeah. I came on campus to do the interview, I said, this is the place. It's the right yeah. size. It's the right suite of programs in the college. I, I really, I fell in love with it. That's so good. It but like I fell into all of it. I mean, at every step, it wasn't planned. It was someone going, hey, you should do this for a while. 
Like, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, as you, as you like kind of probably paint the, the, the ideal scenario of how you would impact, you know, change the institution for the better, uh, make life better for students. What does what does that actually look like? What does that mean to you? And what does that look like uh, if it if it were to play out in the in the perfect world scenario? Well, I, I can answer that, but and, and I will. But it might be a little bit long, so cut me off, okay? Okay, I'll, I'll just like time out. We need a thirty second. Yeah, the for me, if I could make one big change right now, and not just for CMU, but really higher ed in general. But of course, it applies to CMU. Yeah. This this term, this word keeps being used to describe higher education, and it's it's being used in more and more frequency. And that's value. The word value is being used all the time. The public doesn't value higher education. States don't vi- value higher education. And the reason I use that word as the pivot is that usage of value when it comes to a college degree or going to university has changed. Yeah. 15 years ago, value was used in a sense of personal value. What is the personal value of going to university, taking classes, and earning a degree? Now, it's almost exclusively financial. Mm. What is the value? What are you going to get on this return on investment? And here's why I would change it. Not just because of the money, but 15, 20, 30 years ago, tuition was much lower. It, It really was. It was just so much lower. And... You could take risks as a student while you were enrolled. You could take three credit classes in a field not even related to your degree just to see what it was like. And people did it all the time. In fact, I know so many people who are professors or professionals in their field that got into that field because of an oddball class they took on a gut (laughs) feeling. And that ended up being their entire future. But what we've seen since around 2008, 9, 10 is far fewer students doing that. And they're not willing to do it because now it's a value proposition. Those three credits cost me money and add to my tuition. And so colleges like liberal arts and arts and sciences in particular are struggling more because we don't have students taking those classes in philosophy. They don't, we don't have students taking classes in dance. And the, the idea of value being primarily financial rather than this intrinsic desire to improve oneself, you know, the edification is the, is the fancy college word, uh, but gaining that breadth of experience and not just checking a box because your gen ed program says you have to do it. Now, there have always been students that do that. What's the path of least resistance to get me right, out of right. it? But I am a, a not an ivory tower elitist. I am an idealist because my college experience was being able to take these classes all over the place. And it excited me. You know, I took an archaeology class. I took a theater class, even though I was never going to be a theater major. You know, I took all of those classes. And I'll be honest, those classes are who, what have made me yeah. both as a perf- music performer and as a teacher and now as an administrator. Because not only can I relate to the struggles of those different fields, but they are part of the whole of me now. So when I'm thinking about a, a really bad problem I might have between a faculty and a student or a faculty and a faculty, you know, I'm bringing in the ethics and philosophy classes that I took. And um, I, when I go out on stage as a performer, I'm using the 
theater 101 class training that I yeah. took about presence on stage and changing patterns, speech patterns when you're in front of a crowd. I use all of that to this day, and it bothers me tremendously that students are making decisions because they have to financially and not educationally or experimentally. Mm. I think if That's we can true. fix that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems like if we can fix that, um, get it, get things back to the way they used to be, you know? Yeah, right. I know I, I sound like the old dude. Back <laughs> in my day. Well, uh, honestly, you know, the funny thing is, you know, I graduated from university in 2002. And, you know, the college immediately was like asking for money. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, like, I remember that too. Yes. Get out of here. Uh, yeah. Get out of my face. Um, so, but, you know, years later, we started having kids and, my wife and I are like, we're not going to like ed education. All this stuff has changed and you can learn so much online. And, and yes. so I started thinking, I'm like, I don't know if we're going to encourage our kids to go if they want to, if they really want to go to college. Sure. Yeah. But we're not going to set up like everybody else is like, you know, saving for college. And we, we did save for college, but we're just thinking our kids probably aren't going to go to college. Well, up until like maybe a year and a half ago, everything in my mind starts changing and I start remembering what actually happened to me the four years that I lived on campus. And I start thinking about there's no, you know, if you're 18 years old, you graduate high school and then you enter the next phase of life. If that's work, if that's school, if that's, you know, a gap year or whatever, there's no other opportunity like what college out of right outside of high school, I mean, it creates an opportunity for you to fail. It yeah. creates an opportunity for you to, to try new things, to take that theater class or to, you know, take whatever, uh, and, and just figure out like, who am I? Because we're, you know, a, a, I think a male's brain is not fully developed until like 25 or 26. I'm 45 and I'm still wondering, <laughs> is this thing fully That's developed? Uh, you know? And so that, that gap I, now I'm thinking, some of our best friends are the people that we met in college. That's where I met my wife. Uh, that's where we, we were just able to still kind of be kids. Yeah. But also like try like adult things and like be like an adult and practice. And it was sort of this uh, safe, safe ish place to, yeah. to fail and to experiment and whatever. And now I'm thinking about my own kids and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like wh where are they going to do that? If they go eight, if they're 18 years old and they start working a job, that, that seems like the worst thing in the world that they could do when there's so much more life to live. I, I don't disagree with you. And, and you're touching on the second part of the value th idea is, so you go to college and yes, you're taking classes and are some of them going to be disinteresting to you? Yeah, probably. And are you going to have like the A plus 100% best professors in every single class for four years? No, probably not. Because I mean, it's central. Yes, probably. Of course, you know. it's central. But I'm talking about all the other universities. Yeah, all the other ones. Um, but what is not talked about when that's sort of, and, and I just call it the university trope, right? The disengaged prof professoriate and, you know, the boring classes. But what they're always leaving out is... When you come to a university to study a degree, it's not just the suite of classes and being in class and studying. It is joining, you know, more hall TV. It's joining New Central and learning how to do broadcasting. You don't have to be a major to do these things. It's yeah. playing in the marching band. It's yep. joining many clubs on campus. And you're creating not just a circle of friends, but the, these are people with like-minded interests. And no matter where you end up going, you're still connected. And mm -hmm. you never know when that comes back in life. 
someone comes to you and says, man, I, you know, I really wish we had a connection in you know, this company. And you go, actually, I was in drama club with that person for four years. Let me give them a call. And because you had that in-person shared experience, it changes everything. And again, it's all about you know, the, the total the total experience, but it gets lost. And again, it's yeah. because we've turned university tuition into business and now students are customers as much as they are students. And so they have certain expectations on return of what they're buying and yeah. it makes everything far more difficult. And the truth of the matter is, is I don't know a single faculty member of my college that isn't putting in so much extra time doing everything I mean everything. It's not paid time. It's time they're giving up from their families and their own personal lives and their own research to create some new really awesome opportunity or experience because they know this is what needs to happen. And it's not like I'm sitting in a bank and you know I can open up the vault and hand somebody 50 grand and go, yeah, go make that happen. Instead, we are doing everything we can to either build a partnership or go to alums and say, hey, we need a mobile broadcasting van. Does anybody have an old RV they're not using that maybe we could borrow for a year or sell it on the cheap? And, you know, the alumni step up. They really do because yeah. they were there 20 years ago trying to right. do the same thing. And they're like, yeah, absolutely, we can make that happen. Yeah. And, and I'm actually giving you a real-world example of one yeah. of the things yeah. that we've just recently done as we're trying to come up with a mobile, mobile rig, but I don't have $200,000 to right. buy one, a new one. So... You know, we started a new pre-game, post-game show with our student-run media uh, at the football stadium. And it's yeah, it. two faculty members, three faculty members showing up early Saturday morning to set up all the gear, get everything running. They're not getting paid for this. And they came to me. They were like, can we do this? I was like, yeah, yeah of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, so it's. It's the idea that the, the value is actually in the experience. And yeah. yes, yeah. the money is real. I, I absolutely understand yeah. that. But at this point, as an individual, all I can do is to continue to advocate to anybody that will listen that state funding has dropped so far, not just in Michigan. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking writ large. Yeah. It has come down so far that universities had no other choice other than to raise tuition or sh start shutting some things down. And we're seeing this, right, all over the yeah. country. We're yeah. seeing universities closing programs, and some of whom are in really bad shape. That you know, it, It's difficult. There's a wonderful article in the Chronicle of Education recently by a woman named Crystal Lake who attended West Virginia University who is now going through a lot of really bad stuff budget-wise. And the article was, I mean, clearly she's an English professor now, but the entire article is what we're talking about. She came from an impoverished family in West Virginia, uh, rural Appalachia, and at 24, decided she was done bartending and dealing with creepy people and wanted to go to college. And it, the article is just a wonderful story of how she ended up where she is based on opportunities and professors that embraced her and helped her even though she was struggling. They saw that she was talented and smart but didn't know college. You know, I'm a first-generation student, so that kind of stuff really rings true to me because I didn't have anybody at home saying, hey, you know, be careful those first couple weeks because you're going to be late to class or you're not right. going to register right. Or if you have problems, go to this office. That, yep. That's really important. You know, the, the, those, those types of safety nets 
are important and first gen students typically don't have them. So who does it? Professors. They're the ones that kids come to. It's like, I'm really sorry. I was late because my computer died. I don't have a re I don't have another one and I can't do my assignment. And the professor makes a phone call and says, okay, you can check one out from the AV center. You can use it for the whole semester. Yeah. And you know, someone who had been to college, whose parents had been to college would probably know to tell them that. Right. Yep. So it's, it's that individual impact that every professor makes. And again, I, I said most professors probably would tell similar stories about how they were impacted by one or more professors. And I'm no different. You know, I had at least one at each level of education that I've gone through, all the way back to junior high school. There's been at least one teacher who made such an impact on me that it literally changed the course of my life. Yeah. And I've gone out of, way, out of my way to make sure every one of them knew you know, later on what kind of impact they had because sometimes students leave and never hear from them again. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure they knew. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you can't, you can't put a price tag on the value as far as like all the other things. I mean, it's really easy to say like, well, it's going to cost me X amount of dollars by the end of four or five years, however long it's been there, but you cannot put a price tag. What is it, what is it worth to have an alumni, you know, network of people that, that have your back and that will show up for you and that will uh, help you find a job and support yeah. you. like, wh- what is that worth? Like you can't put a price tag on that. No. And, and the experiences, like how do you, you know, are, when, when you look at your best friends, if you were lucky to, to attend university, when you look at the best friends in your life, some of them probably come from university, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's really hard to put that kind of, price tag on on the value there i love that and those people are lifelong friends because of the shared experiences because when you talk to your your college yeah. friends you're talking you're probably reminiscing at some point about some silly stupid or fun thing that you did together <laughs> right always it's shared experience and and again i'm not talking about just hanging out but those clubs those extracurriculars the travel everything that university life offers yep when you when you were talking about you know, wanting to, wanting to make an impact, wanting to make a change yeah. uh, at the university, wherever, wherever you ended up. I think about when I ended up, you know, I got a scholarship at the school that I went to and, and I, it was like a leadership scholarship or something. And yeah. I was like, okay, like, you know, they want me to be a, a leader and they've got expectations. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to step on a campus and just start changing stuff for the better. <laughs> but what was so funny is that after years of being there, I realized that Sure, I might have made some impact and some, but but really, what was changed was me. Uh, I, God, I, I I looked back and I just kind of laugh. I'm like, oh my gosh, here I am thinking I'm on this mission to like change this place, and then my life ends up on a complete different trajectory that I could never have uh, orchestrated on my own. Yeah. Um, do do you can you relate at all to that? Like, I mean, I know I know you want to have an impact, but was there a moment or a time in your own life where you're like, man, you know what, you know, who's, who's been changed. It's, it, it's me. Honestly, I can say that there's been a few of those where, mm. you know, I, I, I ran into something thinking that I was going to take the bull by the horns and make some change and move things forward. And then as it progressed and I looked back on it, I was like, we're not anywhere near where I thought this was going, but this is so much better because I changed the way I saw things, I, I had new information because I met new people. Yeah. Um, so when I was in college as an undergrad, I was in a music fraternity. 
not a great, it's not a great to service fraternity. And I was voted in as president of the fraternity my senior year. And immediately, you know, I set about telling everybody, look, we're not doing this. We have service obligations. We're not doing the creative part. Our choir is not very good. We're going to fix all this stuff. And so I rallied the troops and we started making changes. And one of my first jobs was I had to kick out all these people who were inactive. They had not shown up in like months, weren't paying dues. And I went out and I told them one, I went face to face and told them what was going to happen. And, you know, they were all gracious and they appreciated being spoken to directly and not just unceremoniously tossed out. A few of them actually came back. We changed the choir. We did all these things. And then at the end, fundamentally, the group was not much different. The choir sang better. The group wasn't much different. Our mission had not changed because it shouldn't. And I, what I, what changed about me is that was the moment I learned to listen. And I, when I went into to canceling those people out of the group, like I, I was just guns a blazing. Like you haven't done this. You haven't done this. You've ignored your responsibilities. You're out. Right. And the very first person I had to boot out was the son of the department chair. Ooh. And so I went in there and I had a talk with him and he was like, you know what? You're right. I haven't done any of those things. And it, I'm, I'm just really not where I was before, and I'm not interested in doing it anymore. And I said, oh, okay, why not? And then he started to tell me, and there were some life issues, but his, he had damaged his vocal cords in an accident, oh, wow. and he couldn't sing anymore. Wow. So he thought that because he couldn't sing, he couldn't be in the group, even though the choir was just sort of like a and also, right? So he was one of the ones that came back. When I explained to him, I was like, no, you got it all wrong. You don't have to be, you don't even have to be a music major to be in this group. You just have to have a love for music and serving. And so that was the first like seven people that I spoke with that all wow. had similar relatable stories. And it changed me because I went from this headstrong, super arrogant, and I was super arrogant. I can't relate. I can't relate. It took me down a notch and taught me empathy and it taught me that what we had been doing was actually really good. And yes, there were some tweaks that could be made, but I didn't have the answers. I wasn't the smartest person in the room. And I tried, I actually carry that time of my life with me in my administrative roles because when I feel myself creeping towards that arrogance of, oh, I know how to fix this, just follow me and do what I say, which is very rare now. But, you know, when you, when you really think you got something, you want to do it. I just think back to that, and I was like, I got to talk to everybody. I, I really need to hear what they're what they're telling me because if they thought that I knew what I was doing, they would have just jumped on board. But they know something I don't know, yeah. so I want to hear them. So, I mean, that's just one example of, of several where you know I had those moments where I ended up coming out of it where I was the one that grew when I thought I was going to teach everyone else what to do. I taught middle school in Oregon for a while in Eastern Oregon. Oh, I did band choir. God bless you. Yeah, and it was in the middle of the desert, which I didn't know there was desert in Oregon. And I moved there. I took the job over the phone, so I moved there sight unseen. What I didn't know and no one told me until the third week of school was that more than 50% of the student population were the children of illegal migrants. They went back and forth between Oregon and Texas for planting and harvesting season. And I didn't know. I didn't really care, but the only reason it impacted me is that I'm teaching choir and band. And half of my choir wasn't there one day. And I said, where did everybody go? And they said, Texas. I said, all of them? And they said, yes, it's planting season. 
And I had never experienced any of that. And again, I took this job thinking that I'm going to turn this band and choir around and they're going to be great. And through that year, I, I got to meet some really amazing families. They, they were illegal, illegally here. The parents were. The children were uh, born here. So they were here legally. But they wouldn't come to parent-teacher te conferences because someone had told them that Immigration and Natural Services had planned this. It was a ruse to catch people. So they wouldn't come to parent-teacher conferences. And so we had to do the work of reaching out to them individually to tell them how amazing their son or daughter was in the, in the English class, in the choir class. Most of them were bilingual, and I had some students who weren't, and I didn't really have a good understanding of Spanish. And so they'd say something in my choir, and a bunch of people are laughing, and I don't know what's going on. So one of the bilingual students taught me basically all the bad words in Spanish. <laughs> And she said, but don't use it right away. Wait till a really bad one and then suddenly yell and point. And so a couple of days went by. I heard one of the words and I went, no, not in my class. And that kid's eyes were as big as saucers. And all of them suddenly were like, wait, does he, did he know what we were saying? And this kid was right. This young student who advised me to do that, I never had another problem. Not a, yeah. they, they were perfect. But it also, I, I went in there with all this middle school choir repertoire, and it was all this, you know, cheesy 60s, 70s stuff, and they were all struggling, the whole choir. So I threw it all out, and because we had people who spoke different languages, we did six different pieces in six different languages. So at least one piece, nobody knew what they were doing. And we were all on equal ground, right? But I didn't go into that job thinking that I was going to have to make all those adjustments and learn about all those things. It was, I went into it thinking, I have a master's degree in music and I've already taught. I know what I'm doing. I didn't. And I learned so much from all of the students, not just the choir, but the band too. I had a kid with Tourette's and nobody told me about it. And I found out about it in class one day. Uh, it wasn't the stereotype swearing or anything. It was just, you know, loud noises and, and movements. And I thought he was having problems, you know, like suddenly, but the other kids were like nonchalant about it. So I just, I learned, I grew so much in that year and a half in that job. And I will be eternally thankful for having had the opportunity to work with those kids. And some of them have reached out to me over the years via Facebook or whatever. And, you know, told me, hey, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the stage in, in Portland. I, this is what I do for a living now. And, you know, they, they like to give me credit, but I, I, I didn't really do much. But uh, those are the things that really change you. When you see that you can have an impact on people, but then they have a tremendous impact on you. And again, yeah. this is what a degree can do for you, but you have to participate. You can't just go to class, go to your room, play video games, and then come back. You, you have to explore on your own. The opportunities are every, you can't go down the hallway without seeing a sign for 12 different groups that are meeting right. that week. And they're cool stuff, film society, you know, things like that. But you have to make a little bit of effort. And if you want to maximize, you know, that experience and get that shared experience. Sorry, I told you you'd have to stop me, especially when you talk about this. If I talk about great. the school in Oregon, that, that, was, that was, I mean, there are so many more things. That's powerful. Yeah. I love that. As you reflect on the the work that you do today, you know, we were talking before we hit record that, you know, probably every professor that you talk to would have a story of somebody that influenced them and uh, made them want to 
uh, enter this this work. For you, is there is there a person or was there a situation, something that that did happen in your life where you felt like, man, this this person did make that kind of difference in me, and I I want to have that opportunity to to be able to do that to to other students. Yeah, you know, I mentioned that. I've had impactful teachers that go all the way back to junior high school. Yeah. And, and I know you're asking me specifically about a professor and, and, and I do have one, but the most impactful one I have, I have to answer with this one first, which is my junior high band director. Um, Mr. Al Delianovis was his name. Uh, he was a jazz piano player that ended up just sort of becoming a band director at the middle school, junior high level. I was a very short, very fat junior high kid. And I got beat up all the time. And people laugh when I tell them that now because I'm 6'2", 270. Right. But I was not then. I was a short, slow, fat kid. I was the manager for the basketball team. You know, I was that kid. And I played clarinet. And I was pretty good at at it. Pretty I was just naturally pretty good at it. And I, I got good fast. And he noticed that every morning before classes started, I was hiding in this one room of the commons area that was supposed to be the vending machine room, but they took all the vending machines out. I just hid back there so I wouldn't get beat up because I got relentlessly picked on. And so he invited me into the band room every morning where he would like play little simple jazz riffs on the piano and tell me to improvise. Didn't tell me how, just play anything you want. And so I'd toot on my clarinet for about 20 minutes while he played his own thing. And then I was off and on my way. Well, then he would let me come in during lunch to do it because, again, I got bullied during lunch as well. So I'd come in at lunch and do it. And this went on for four or five months where I'd come in, he'd play some stuff. Then he would start explaining to me a few things and I'd get better. And he'd go, nah, you're playing that thing all wrong. And, you know, whatever. And, you know, when I look back on it now, he gave up his mornings and he gave up his lunch break because he knew I was struggling, like personally. And he also knew that in my seventh or eighth grade year, I missed 60 days of school because I was faking being sick. So my mom would have to come pick me up and draw me off at home so I wouldn't have to deal with after school bullying. And he, he, he realized all of this. And saving me might be strong, but he certainly made me realize there was a light at the end of the tunnel and that music was a way for me to do that. Now, unfortunately, my ninth grade year, he died over Christmas break. Uh, He was a larger man, and he was on a lot of swing diets, losing 40 pounds, gaining 50 over and over, and his heart couldn't take it, and he passed away. And it was kind of at that point, even at that young age, I decided that one day I wanted to be able to do for another kid what he had done for me. And that really set me on my path. And to be honest with you, from the age of 12, there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be a music teacher. Like anybody would ask me. And I, would, I, was, I, would, I was with the smart kids. I was in the top 5% classes, AP yeah. classes. And they're all going to be engineers and chemists and all these things. And everybody's like, what are you going to do? I'm going to teach music. And I, quite honestly, I kept getting told that's really a waste of your talent and your abilities. I was like, this is what I want to do. I, I've chosen this already. And uh, so, you know, Mr. D set me on that path. And then in college, I was a junior and became really good at playing my instrument. And everybody was like, you should go into performance. Go get a master's degree in performance. I was like, I'm going to be a band director. This is my whole life's purpose. And I had uh, a really amazing undergraduate bassoon teacher. And he sat me down one day and he said, you're good enough. 
and you should think about pursuing this, but get the education degree anyway, because you clearly want to teach and it'll just make you a stronger teacher one day anyway. And you got to understand this teacher was one of the best teachers I ever had, professors, but he swore at me nonstop. I went to school in Kentucky. People swore all the time. He swore at me nonstop in my lessons, like all up and down the wall, to the point where the clarinet teacher would knock on the door and open and go, is everybody okay in here? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so, uh, but I knew it came from love. You know, he wasn't yeah, actually yeah, yeah. yelling at me. This was right. just his motivational way, just like a football coach will scream yeah. and swear at kids and then pat them on the butt when they come off the field after making a yeah. good play, right? And he allowed me to pursue both fields at the same time, even though the faculty didn't really want that. <laughs> and, you know, he supported me the whole way. He made a phone call to the master's degree school, and this was way before the internet, and so there were no on online applications. He made a call to the teacher and said, I got this really talented kid. He's going to need some, you know, butt kicking, but, you know, I got this kid. If you want to take him, I'll, I'll get him ready. So he got me into that school. I didn't even audition. They took me on his recommendation, you know, and he was there. He's still alive, but he was there in the ensuing years to support me too, in his own way. You know, when I, when I called to tell him that I was going to be a dean, he was like, oh, your britches have gotten real big now. And I was like, yep. Well, anyway, yeah, that's they, probably what you expected. Just, there are just so many teachers and that then along the way, my, my first tenure track job was uh, my music history mentor at Nebraska, Dr. Pamela Starr. Uh, man, she really helped me. And she, again, kicked my butt. I thought I knew everything. And she made sure to, that I knew that I didn't. And her recommendation got me the job, basically. So yeah, I love that. I love those those stories. That's powerful. Mr. D, right from middle yeah. school? Is that his name? Al Dulianibus. What a What a champion. I mean, geez, oh, Pete's. Yeah. I just love that, that he was listening, right? And that he was watching and, um, and that he went well above and beyond what was expected of him, you know, in his role as a teacher. Yeah, he really uh, did. That's a beautiful story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I know that there's a, there's this sense amongst people in higher ed that, um, I think some of us lose our purpose, forget our why, yeah. forget um, about the impact that we can have because we just get, we get stuck in our heads. We get stuck, you know, we've got piles of papers to go through or admin stuff or, you know, life, you know, yeah. what, what encouragement would you, would you offer faculty staff uh, to remind them of the importance of their work? Well, I think the first thing I would remind them is to get out of the office, get out of the department and walk around campus. And they themselves need to attend things that are going on in other departments. And it was something I tried to do as a faculty member when I would get in that bad spot. Is that, you know, I, I would go to an art lecture. I'd go to a business speaker. I, I, I would go to the art gallery. That was sort of my, my recovery space. I'd go to the art gallery and look at the faculty and student exhibition, you know, because once you experience those things again, number one, it's going to transport you back to when you were an undergrad and all of this was fresh. All of that newness, all of that excitement, it comes back. And I, I would bet the vast majority of the faculty that you know and that I know went into college teaching because of the, that excitement of every new school year. 
Yeah. Every new school year with a new group of kids coming in and new projects and class revisions and you're re-energized again. So that my first advice would be find your way to recapture that excitement, not just the love and passion. I think we all have that, but it does get beaten down with endless yeah. paperwork and budget discussions. Find that passion. And I do that. In, I try to do that now. I go to as many things as I humanly can, not because I have to, because I'm one step further removed from teaching students than I would prefer. And so being able to see their work is at least one way. I went to uh, a play last weekend that the theater department put on. Uh, it was great. It was the birds and, and it was fantastic. And just watching the students that I've seen in the hallways now on stage making art, it gets me excited and ramped up. And that means that I can go back and talk to the provost when I need extra funding or to a donor because there's this cool new idea for summer theater. Um, I, I think the same thing applies in the role of a professor is if fine, maybe going around campus doesn't invigorate you. Go to your conference and don't try to present. Go to your conference and listen to all the other people talking about things, cool things, interesting things, some negative things. But absorb that a little bit and again i really think it'll feel you know why I, you know why i have a hard time going to music concerts the professional student doesn't matter what it is i'm a musician by trade i have a hard time going to music concerts because five minutes into every single concert that i am at all i want to do is get up and practice i want to get up out of my seat and go in a practice room and start practicing because just being around people making music makes me excited again to go back in there so I, I think that is the most important part is keeping the perspective on what we're doing and fighting for pay and, and rights and all of those things is essential and important. I'm a big believer in unionization, but it can really sap your energy and seeing how the sausage is made can really alter your view of things. And yeah. it's important as you're fighting those fights or dealing with those scenarios you also keep reinvigorating yourself with the why. Wow. This has been amazing, uh, Dr. Campbell. Thank you so much uh, for the stories. Um, anything else? Anything we didn't cover that you're like, man, Ryan, you need to know this or you need to hear this? There's a lot of things. I, I, that, <laughs> you know, Open a can of worms here. Thing I, it would be this. Higher education is facing some tremendous financial pressure and challenges right now. It's undeniable, but we, we will find a way through it. The, we will find a way to re-communicate with the people of our country and our states and our towns what the value of education is on the individual, not just the Im impact of revenue generated on the, on the state, but every individual one way or another is being positively impact. Whether it means they dropped out because it wasn't for them, that's actually a positive. They learned, I'm not ready for this at this point in my life. It's time to go try something else. Yep. Or the person who gets inspired or the person who discovers a brand new world of information and, and experiences. That is irreplaceable. And honestly, this country has enough money to do what it chooses to do. There will be a time, and it's not that far in the distant future, when we will choose once again that this is a priority for us. And we'll, we'll be alive for that, and I'm looking forward to it. Mm. So good. Man, thank you for your perspective. Thanks for sharing. I really, really appreciate you being on the show.
It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I, you're, you're making me all excited. I'm probably going to have to go out and make some calls. <laughs> hey, thank you again for making it this far into the episode. If you enjoyed this episode, hey, share it. Sharing is caring. Take a screen grab, send it, text it to a friend, a colleague, whoever. Um, and if you're ready to have a conversation about connecting with your ideal students, alumni, or donors by using the power of soulful storytelling through video, shoot me an email. We should have a chat. My email address is ryan at enrollfilms.com. Also, if you like this show, if you like what you're hearing, you're inspired by these stories, I would love to hear feedback. And if you hate them, let me know. Uh, let me know how I can make this show better. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Uh, I am also on the socials at Ryan Coral. K-O-R-A-L is my last name. A lot of my friends call me Coral, so uh, don't be shy, okay? Thank you so much for listening. Here's to making a difference, and I'll see you on the next episode.